So this evening we are moving out of the introduction to Paul's letter to the Romans and we are venturing into the first main section which deals with the bad news. And the bad news runs from chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. And so the plan uh, before uh, we break up say at Christmas time is, is to try and through this section at least. Now, before we dive in and look at verses 18 through 20, uh, 32, let me ask you this question. What is our world's biggest problem? Like, we all know that our world has serious problems, don't we? I don't think any of us would deny it or would argue with the fact that our world is in a serious mess. Everyone would admit that there's something wrong with the world, but not everyone agrees. What is wrong with the world? So what would you say is the world's biggest problem? Right now, there are many telling us that it's climate change. There is a climate crisis. There's conferences going on about it all the time. World leaders gathering. Many anxious. Others are are fearful regarding the problem of wars, conflicts, terrorism. Right now, in fact, there seems a real anxiety in the world that the potential of a nuclear war is all the more closer. Others would say the big problem in the world is is injustice and inequality. Everywhere you look, there's injustice, there's abuse. There's a mistreatment, there's violence. Others are still worried and say, we've not really learned our lesson from covid There may be another global pandemic on its way. Well, there's a raft of answers that could be given to the world's biggest problems. But according to Paul here in Romans, you want to know what the world's biggest problem is? Verse 18, it's there in black and white. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. The biggest problem facing our world is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven right now against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. This is the charge. This is the headline that stands over this uh, section. Here's the bad news. Here's the reason why we need the gospel because we are all under the wrath of God. We are all by nature objects of God's wrath. We are all headed to hell apart from Jesus Christ. If there was one word that was to stand over the section, Romans 1, 18 through Romans 3, 20, it would be condemnation. We are all under God's just and perfect condemnation. In one sense, verse 18 It's rather abrupt. Paul's just spoken about the gospel that we were thinking about last week in verses 16 and 17. And the question is, why does he suddenly shift his attention away from the good news to an announcement regarding the bad news? Here's why. Because until we understand the revelation of the wrath of God, we'll never get excited about the revelation of the grace of God. Paul begins this letter with the bad news because if we're going to appreciate the good news, we need to know 
the bad news first. Now, tonight we are looking at a section that is filled with some hard-hitting truths, not least that we are all under the wrath of God, but, but it goes on and it unpacks just how bad we are. How guilty and contemned we stand before God. When you hear the, the phrase wrath of God, wonder what comes to mind. Let me tell you this, it's not the loss of self-control, it's not irrational, it's not a capricious outburst of anger. God's wrath refers to his settled, determined indignation against all that is sinful and unholy. Someone has put it like this, divine wrath is righteous antagonism toward all that is unholy. It is the revulsion of God's character to that which is a violation of God's will. And you notice in verse 18 that we're told that there are two things, in fact three things, that provoke God to wrath. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. See the ungodliness? It has to do with our attitudes towards God. And see the unrighteousness? It has to do with how we behave towards our fellow humans. But notice that God is also rightly angry with us because by our unrighteousness we suppress the truth you see god has made it known to the whole world that he exists and yet we suppress this truth and it provokes god to wrath now seeing it says suppress there i don't know what image comes to your mind but just think you know if you suppress something uh, you go swimming, you're on a float, you try and push it down. You, there's a ball in the pool and you try and push it down. Well, you might push it down, but it's just going to pop straight back up. That's what we do with the truth of God. We try and push it down. And we try and do it with our wickedness, our unrighteousness. R.C. Sproul, when, he, when he, he tries to illustrate this in his commentary, he says, you know, we could actually plunder modern psychology for an illustration. You know when you've got a painful, mem- a painful memory? You know, a traumatic experience? You know what you do? You try and push it down. You try and suppress it. You try and, re- you try and store it away in the deepest recesses and chambers of your mind. Well, that is exactly what we do with the truth about God. And it is because we do that, we stand condemned. Now, what I want us to do tonight is we're going to work our way through verses 19 uh, to 32, three, three sections where God shows us why we stand condemned. One, because of his revelation. Two, because of our idolatry. And then finally, because of our immorality. Verses 19 and 20 speak to God's revelation. Read them with me. For what we known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Here's Paul's point. Everyone knows that there is a God. 
since what may be known about God is plain. We've just sung about it, right? In, In Psalm 19, the heavens above, they declare the glory of our God. The skies, his handiworks. The clouds, day after day, they pour forth speech. No language is used, no spoken word, but we all hear it. There is this glorious creation, and it points to the truth that there is a God, there is a creator. Paul, when he speaks here about God's revelation, he's speaking about what we call general revelation. That this revelation is not his special revelation. So we, we can't look at creation and, and come to the conclusion that God is triune. We can't look at creation and, 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 and figure out the gospel message. But we can look at creation and see that there is a God. One great theologian, Herman Bavink, said it like this, Heaven and earth and all creatures, herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yet all the things... Declare God. There is not an atom of the universe in which God's power and divinity are not revealed. There's a well-known story that an atheist once visited Isaac Newton. You know, the the great scientist. And, And Newton had this mechanical model of the solar system in his study. And the man who was an atheist said, Who made this? Newton said, Nobody. And the atheist said, you must think I'm a fool. It would take a genius to make this. And so Newton replied, oh, this is only a puny imitation of a much grander system. I can't convince you that this mere toy is without a designer, yet you profess to believe that the great original form which this is taken from has come into being without a designer or a maker. Everyone knows when you look at creation that it points to the truth that there is a creator. In fact, notice what Paul says, what what creation points us to. It points us to one of his eternal attributes, his divine power. You know, you, you look at this world, right? And you can logically surmise that it has been made by a God who is powerful. Just think, he filled the seas. He heaped up the towering mountains. He laid the foundation of the world. He hung the sun, the moon, the planets in outer space. How great and awesome must his power be. And yet, even though there's this clear revelation of God, we reject him. The problem that's presented to us here is this, is that there's not, is not that there's not enough evidence that is open to man. The problem is that we as humankind, we're not open to the evidence. Even though God has made himself known to all people, we choose to turn away from this truth and we reject God. Now just look at Paul's crescendo in verse 20. So they are without excuse. Meaning this, there is no one who will be able to stand on the day of judgment and say, God, I didn't know about you. I didn't know that there was a God. You know, there are people who call themselves atheists and they proclaim and profess that they don't believe in God. Here's the thing, God does not believe in atheists. 
what is plain about God has been made plain to all. Cosmic crime number one that we have committed against God is that he has made it plain to us that he exists and we have rejected the knowledge of God. Indeed, we try and do all we can to suppress it. And then this leads us to our second proof. The second reason why we stand condemned and guilty before God, and it's as we're going to see, it's because we are idolaters. Look at what Paul says in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. For even though they knew God, as I said, there's no such thing as an honest atheist. All people know God. And, 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 and they know that there is a God, and Here's the response. They do not give God what he is due. They don't honor him as God. They don't give him the glory that he rightfully deserves, nor do they give thanks to him. We looked at this this morning. You know, one of the evidences of a hard heart is to grumble. One of the evidence that you reject God is deep ingratitude. Failing to give thanks to the God who has created you, who sustains you, who's given you the privilege to live in his creation. Cosmic crime number two, if you like, is that we don't treat God as he deserves to be treated. We don't worship him, we don't honor him, we don't love him, we don't thank him. And and, and just so you don't miss it, right? Every human being begins life with this inescapable knowledge of the existence of God and then regress into this darkness. And as a result, we we are all guilty. We stand condemned. But notice what Paul goes on to say. When a person rejects the truth about God, this is what it leads to. Futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts darkened. Reject the that there is a God, and the result of rejecting his truth is you'll become futile in your thoughts. Reject divine light, and you'll become darkened in your heart. And then just add insult to your injury. You will claim to be wise when in actual fact you are a fool. It's such a sad, sad story. There's a story told about a UCCF, that's a university campus ministry here in England. They um, were doing evangelism, and they thought they wanted to write a tract. And so what they did is they took the words of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, took all the verse numbers out, took away Romans chapter 1, 18, verse 32, just so that people didn't know where it was from, put it in a tract, and started giving it out in the university campus. Well, it wasn't long before the university authorities called in and they were furious. And they censored them. And these university academics, these boffins, then had the audacity to say, and bring to us the person who wrote this. They thought they were wise, but they're absolute fools. This is God's word. 
We, we think of ourselves as wise. We boast in our brilliance, thinking we're wiser than the one who made us. Now, wait till you see the consequence. Look at what it leads to. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. This is where futile thinking, this is where darkened hard hearts leads to. And this is such a tragedy. Men who refuse to worship God as God, they choose to insult the majesty of God by replacing him for that which is created. That's, that's, that's what lies at the heart of idolatry. You substitute God for something else. The tragedy here is the, the, the their idolatries, they make images of men and birds and animals and creeping things. You know, um, this is really interesting. There's surveys done all the time to say how many people are religious, how many people aren't religious in our culture. And one of the interesting facts about London is London is the most religious part of the United Kingdom. I mean, that because of all... We, we, we can speculate that and see that because of all the immigration and there's people of lots of different faces here in London. And uh, the, the nuns, those without religion, they're, they're, they're actually decreasing. But you know, what's, you know what this passage teaches us? Is there is no one who is not religious. Everyone's religious. You see, if you suppress the truth of who God is, do you know what you do? You exchange it for something, someone else. In fact, we, we become more religious in order to reject God. And this brings about the judgment and the just condemnation of God. If you know the Bible, if there's one thing you know about the Ten Commandments, is the first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment is you shall not create things in the image of God. And here's Paul as he's given us the bad news. Humanity fails at the first hurdle. Now, back in the day, people literally made statues and figures and they bowed down and they worshipped them. We might not make idols of metal, but we make idols that are mental all the time. Our families, ourselves, power, pleasure, possessions. We, we worship them. We look for our satisfaction and our meaning and our identity in them. All the while rejecting the creator and making much of that which is created. These things, they can never satisfy us. We can never fulfill the aching needs of our lives. And as a result, we stand condemned and we stand empty. And now we come to our third and final point. Humans stand condemned and guilty before God because of our immorality. Look at how God responds to this idolatry. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. Now just flick over to chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. And then glance your eye down at verse 28. Halfway through, God gave them up. What happens to humanity that willfully, brazenly, 
ignores God, replaces God. Paul said three times here, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, what does God do? God gives them over. He gives them up to their sins. See see that phrase there, Uh, gives them up, gives them over. It means to be handed over to judgment. The same phrase is used to describe Jesus being handed over to judgment for our sins. Because of our idolatry, because of our rejection of God, God lets us go our own way so that we might experience the full destructive consequences of our sin. We want life apart from God? Have it. We want a life of sin? God removes his straining hand of grace. He lets us go after it. The wrath of God here, and by the way, sometimes when we we think about the wrath of God, we we think about it purely in a future sense. There's coming a day of judgment. Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven right now. This is how God reveals his wrath. He gives people over to what they want. Their sin. God lets us have what we want. And this is one of the most sobering truths about God's judgment. You wonder why, you know, you can look at our culture and, 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 and in some ways, and, and not just our culture, look at ourselves. We, we, we can sometimes go, go deep into sin, headlong into sin as it were. Reject God, become an idolater, idolater. This is what, this is what happens. This is the consequence. Now, just go back and see, what what does God give them up to? Verse 34, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Hmm. So when men refuse to honor God, they begin to dishonor themselves. And how does it manifest itself? The lusts of their hearts. Sexual impurity. Whenever idolatry has gripped a society, you better believe it, immorality will always be the inevitable result. When people start worshipping other things than God, other people and things, when they become obsessed with the physical, the gratification of their physical desires, it will run rampant in their lives. And they will engage more and more immorality and and sin. And and, and all the while it becomes less and less satisfying. But the problem is, is they're given over to it. And they go on and on in it, looking for satisfaction, but never finding it. God gave them up to immorality. Whenever the glory of God is attacked, sooner or later, the dignity of man suffers. And notice what Paul says in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, Paul all the way through writing this, he's so passionate. And notice what he's passionate about. He's passionate about God. Because when your eyes are open to see God for who he is as the creator, you recognize he is the one and the one alone who is worthy of all praise. But the downward descent continues. Look at what else God gives us over to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We come to one of the hot-button issues in our culture. have been thinking about sexuality, now we're thinking about homosexuality. And so as we come into this, I realize this is a huge topic in our culture. I realize in a room this size, there are perhaps people who struggle with their sexuality. And so as I, as I come to speak to this, I realize I'm standing up here and I'm preaching from God's word, right? And so I'm speaking to you and maybe this throws up lots of questions in your minds. Here's my invitation. After the service, come and speak to me, Dick, one of the other elders, somebody sitting next to you, a trusted Christian, if this is something that you struggle with or you just want to talk through. This is a a big topic, it's an important topic, but Paul has just said in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And as he lays out the gospel, he he begins with the the bad news, and so, brothers and sisters, we, we stand not over God's word, but we stand under God's word. God's word has to be central to our understanding of this life. It is the authority that binds our consciences. It is what we submit to. So, so what is, what is Paul saying here? Well, he's given an, ex, he's given an example of what, what happens when you suppress the truth about God, impurity, idolatry, immorality. And then do you know what happens? You exchange God's natural created order for that which is unnatural. Genesis chapter 2, God made him and woman in his image, male and female. We were, we were made to exist, male and female, in the context of marriage, God's good purposes and God's good gift as he gave us sex to be enjoyed by male and female. Let, let me say this honestly. God is delights in sex in the context of marriage between male and female. It's his gift. So it leads to uh, children. It's, 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 it's what a, a couple, it's how they consummate their relationship. It's how they express their oneness and you know, the enjoyment. Of but here as we look at this descent, this, this descent into sin, we see the created order is reversed. Women give themselves to unnatural relationships, women with women, and men do the same. Now, Sometimes people hear that and they think, why does Paul use this sin? Like, is the Bible obsessed with sexual sin? Is the Bible obsessed with homosexuality? Is homosexuality the worst sin? Let me say this. When you read through the Bible, you don't actually find the Bible obsessed with this sin. You know, there's only two other occasions outside of here where homosexuality is mentioned in the New Testament. So why does Paul use this? Because it's the perfect illustration of when you take God's good created purposes and you exchange them for what is not his good created purposes for sex and relationships. 
And then we, we continue this descent into immorality. Look at verse 28. Look at, look at what, what he says now. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. Now listen to this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What does God give us up to? Total depravity. All manner of unrighteousness. And you know what's fascinating when you look at this list? You could actually sum it up by one word. Selfishness. All the things there are all self-focused, envy, murder, gossip, slander, haters of God, disobedient to parents, me first. Now the danger is we, we read a list like this, right, and we think, I see all of those problems and I see it out there. Your biggest problem is not out there. Your biggest problem is in here. Paul's talking about us. The bad news is this is us. We are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. We are evil. We are full of envy. We are full of murder. We are deceitful. We are gossips. We are slanders. We are haters of God. We are boastful. We are inventors of evil. We disobey our parents. We are foolish and faithless, heartless and ruthless. We are sexually broken. All of these things reveal that we all fall short of God's standard and so we stand condemned. We are worthy of God's wrath. One of the the, the scary things about this passage is the verse it ends on. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. If you look at our culture, just say the sexual and moral revolution we've experienced over the last 30, 40, 30, 40 years. Some things that were once condemned, they're now celebrated. And things that ought to be celebrated are now becoming condemned. People call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. And even though they know in their own consciences these things are worthy of God's punishment they don't just do them they give their full approval to them this is supposed to sober us up we are all guilty we are all objects of God's wrath now there's one final exchange we've looked at a number of exchanges in this passage people exchange the glory of God for images, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, they exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Do you know the fourth exchange? You can exchange the wrath of God for the righteousness of God. That's what verse 17, remember we're looking at it last week. 
For in, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We stand condemned as sinners. But God in his goodness, he offers us Jesus. So that we might be able to stand before our creator and worship him. That we might exchange our rebellion for praise. Exchange our pain for joy. Exchange our brokenness and our sinfulness and our depravity for holiness and righteousness. Instead of searching for satisfaction, we might find and discover eternal glory and joy in his presence. And so the question as we come to the end of this passage is, as we see the bad news, do you hear the good news? He says, you're worthy of the wrath of God. By nature, we've sinned and we fall short of God. But here's what it's offered. By faith, trust in Christ. His perfect life, his perfect record will become yours. Because at the cross, he took his people's sin. He bore the wrath of God so that we don't have to. And he gives freely of his perfect record. And there is no better good news than that. But if you're going to appreciate that and you're going to revel in that, you're going to boast in that, you need to understand the bad news is about you and me. And the good news is also offered to you and me. Hmm. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. Lord, there's if we're honest, there's sometimes where we, we don't want to face up to the truth. We would do anything to hide from the truth. And yet we come to your word tonight and we are brought face to face with the truth of your word. The truth of who we are. And the truth of what's gone wrong in this world. And our biggest problem is that we are objects of your wrath. We stand condemned. And we thank you that even as we study this passage, we're led to the good news of the gospel. There is a righteousness from you offered in your son. Praise be to God. And so we respond as your people in faith and trust. We pray that even as we go here from church and go into this week, that it would be the amazing grace of the gospel that would fuel our lives, our praise. We pray all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.